That is a lovely, warm welcome. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Mary Fran, and I do come from Pine, Arizona, and I am a very, very grateful member of Al-Anon. I can't tell you how pleased I am and with what joy I hear the laughter that's going on in this room. And I know that God's smiling down at us right now. You are a beautiful picture, and I looked around a minute ago to see each one of you holding up the light, and it was lovely, really beautiful. You have no idea how beautiful you do look with holding a candle. I appreciate the warm welcome a while ago. I don't usually get an introduction to that extent. In fact, <laughs> I really kind of just prefer saying uh, I would like you to meet Mary Fran. She's an Al-Anon member. That's really how I prefer it. But I do thank you very, very much for all the acknowledgments you gave me a while ago. It was lovely. I came here because I wanted to tell you what happened to me. It's pure and simple. In fact, I'm going to tell you a lot of things about me. In fact, when we're through, you're going to know more about me than you ever wanted to know. <laughs> and I have found that people are always interested in Al-Anon that speak. What's their relationship to the disease of alcoholism? So I'll tell you that I had a husband in AA who was an alcoholic. Um, I want to tell you a couple things about him, and then I will tell you about me. Tom was probably the kindest, gentlest, most compassionate, sensitive, understanding, self-centered man I've ever known. <laughs> and I loved him dearly. Now, Tom died eight years ago. And uh, he had two goals before he died in the latter years of his life. One was that he would die sober, and the other was that he would live long enough to see the year 2000. But he did accomplish the first part. And the second, he almost made it. He died just four months before the end of the century. And Tom was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous for 26 years when he died. <laughs> and if you're listening, Tom, that was for you. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start telling you about me now. Uh, whether you want to hear it or not, you need to know what kind of a person I am and why I'm up here and what happened to me. So that's what I've come to tell you. I was uh, the youngest of three daughters, and uh, I grew up in a northwestern state. I had two older sisters that were uh, considered very, very bright and uh, intelligent. One of them was always known as the intellectual intelligent one. The other one was the pretty witty one, and then there was me. Now, nobody ever didn't say you aren't intellectual, intelligent, pretty or witty, but they didn't say I was either. <laughs> so I just kind of grew up, and uh, I often re think of how my mother must have been tired by the time she got to me. I was the third one. I have three of my own. I know the feeling. <laughs> In fact, uh, I remember thinking 
with my children how I had changed as the years went by. No child of mine was ever going to suck their thumb. <laughs> so anyway, I hounded this poor little thing until she quit sucking her thumb. The second one came along, well, he just sucked it a little, and besides, he seemed to kind of enjoy it and get some comfort from it. It didn't seem to do too much harm to him. By the time we got to the third one, I would say, honey, why don't you just put your little thumb in your mouth and give mother a rest? (laughs) So I knew what it meant to have a third child, and so my mother just kind of humored me. Now, my older sisters were held up to me as an example all the time about how they were this and they were that, and I, pretty got, I got pretty weary of hearing about it. But uh, anyway, I, I kind of felt like I wasn't a, a worthwhile person. I wasn't a valuable human being. And I grew up with this, and so I kept thinking, I'll do something so I'll feel more valuable. And so I started taking lessons, and I wanted to do everything. My mother would say, just let her do what she wants to do, and I wanted to do everything. And so I started taking lessons so I could find my place in the world to feel like I was a valuable person. And just to give you a a few ideas of some of the lessons I took, I took singing lessons and dancing lessons and skiing lessons and ice skating lessons and diving lessons and lifeguard lessons and sewing lessons and embroidery lessons and macrame lessons, and I did china painting, everything that you can think of. And you see, I didn't really excel at anything. I didn't stay with it long enough in the first place to ever find out, but I kept looking for something, always looking for somewhere where I could feel like I was a valuable person. So this is the way I grew up. Well, everything went along fairly well. I was taking all these lessons, but uh, a terribly traumatic thing happened to me then when I was 16 years old. My father died of alcoholism. This was a devastating blow to me. I adored my father. I only knew of him from a distance. He didn't have time for me. He was a businessman and very busy, and uh, he preferred every night after dinner to go to the Elks Club and play cards and drink, I guess. So he didn't have time for me. I only have two really nice, lovely recollections of him. One, he came to my confirmation when I was being confirmed at 12 years old in the Episcopal Church, which was pretty unusual because he was Roman Catholic and it wasn't his church. But I looked up and saw him in the audience, and I was so moved by that because my father never came to anything that I participated in, and there he was in the audience. And the other thing I remember with great joy was that he had a speedboat, and I'd stand on the prow of the speedboat, and he'd rip and tear that thing up and down the lake trying to knock me off. (laughs) And that was great sport. So those are the things I remembered about my father. But anyway, I I believe that everything that happens to us uh, has some bearing on what we become or what we think. And I know at that time I thought, I will never allow anyone to be close to me again because they might be taken away from me. Well, I probably entered my marriage with that kind of an idea. So that this gives you some kind of an idea of what kind of a person I was. 
I thought, well, when all these uh, things didn't work, I would find something else where I could excel. So I finally came up with the answer, I'll become a movie star. (laughs) What are you laughing at? (laughs) Why do people always laugh when I say that? Anyway, I got a job in the local theater as an usherette, and I worked in the balcony, and I heard all the movies over and over and over again, and I memorized this script, and I'd go home and practice in the mirror, and I was very, very serious about this. I'll become a movie star. That's where I can feel valuable. I mean, those people got a lot of credit, and uh, they were famous, and it would be a lovely life. Well... I had heard that Lana Turner had been discovered in a drugstore. (laughs) And I hung out in the (laughs) drugstore. Now let me tell you, there isn't a whole lot going on in a drugstore in Pocatello, Idaho. (laughs) I still think about it sometimes. Do you think it's too late? Well, anyway, as I say, things went along fairly well. After my father died, uh, it changed my my life. My mother went to work, and we rented out rooms in our home. And uh, now I was the only only child at home. So my mother and I were quite close, but anyway. Time came for me to go away to school, and so my uh, two sisters, the bright one, the intelligent one and the pretty one, went to uh, Oregon State, and I thought, well, I'm not going up there. It rains all the time. It wrecks your hair, so I'm not going to go up there. So I went to the University of Colorado, and uh, I was not an academic genius. I didn't particularly like school. Uh, They didn't have lessons there. But... (laughs) I did go uh, to school for a couple of years, and then when I came home, uh, after I had taken some more lessons at the University of Colorado, I took flying lessons. Now, this is what I thought my forte was. I will become a pilot, probably in the movies, but I wanted to be a pilot more than anything in the world, and... uh, so I took the, uh, the flying lessons with the idea of joining the wasps. Now, for you young people, you don't know about World War II, but the wasps were the women army service pilots in World War II. And uh, I took these flying hours so that I could have the prerequisite requirement to get into the wasps. I was uh, 18 years old, and... Uh, I had to be 18 and a half, so I had to wait till I was 18 and a half, and by the time I was 18 and a half and had all the requirements needed to go into the WASP, I was awaiting orders to go, they disbanded them. Uh, they weren't losing as many male pilots in World War II. World War II, as they had anticipated, they had learned daylight bombing and a lot of different things, and so now fortunately we were not losing the men that they had been losing previously so they said we don't need women pilots now so my mother said well maybe you'd like to go to the way go into the navy she knew i was very restless and wanted to do something so that's what i did i waited till i was 20 years old and i joined the navy so uh <laughs> there's a veteran <laughs> 
and uh, I had some lovely experiences. I have to laugh to, to this day because every once in a while there'll be a weather report, and we'll be talking about the weather, and I'll say, well, you know, I am a trained meteorologist. They'll say, oh, yeah. I, well, I really am. <laughs> but that's what I did in the Navy. I was, became a meteorologist, and I enjoyed it immensely because I could be around the fellows that were flying at the airports, and we'd make the, the weather reports and present them to them when they were taking flights out. So I, w I spent uh, uh, those months in the service. But just before I went into the service, and I was just home from school, I, w I was invited to join a friend of mine at a USO hut in Pocatello. We had a very famous USO hut in the depot, the train depot, where as all the troop trains came through in uh, World War II to go their embarkation points up in Seattle and different places along the coast, they would stop the troop trains and we'd serve them coffee. And I had never done this before, and they called the day I was over at her house and said, bring your friend, we need, we're having a troop train come in, and we need you. So she said, okay, I'll bring my friend, and that was me. So I joyfully went down, and we served this troop train. It was very exciting. We were just cleaning up after the troop train pulled out, and in walked three young uh, fellows off the local air base. They were looking for a free cup of coffee. Now, my friend knew them. She had dated one of them and knew the other two. And uh, you know who one of them was. <laughs> well, anyway, I took a look at them, and I thought, well, they were kind of a funny-looking bunch. But uh, they decided they wanted to go play bridge at my house. And I said, okay. And I thought, devious-minded, manipulating thinking, I thought, I've just home from school and I've got a trunk and there's no man in our house to carry it to the basement. Maybe I can get them to carry it down. <laughs> so really, that's why I took him home. <laughs> so my friend and I took him home. Now, I had the pretty witty sister who was there living with my mother because her husband was overseas and she was eight months pregnant and she sat down and played bridge with these three fellows. And I thought, well, I'll be darned. I brought them home, and I did carry the trunk down, but I mean, they ignored this friend of mine and I entirely, and I thought they're more interested in the pretty witty sister of mine than they are of me, and here she's eight months pregnant, I was pretty put off by the whole thing. <laughs> Finally, one of them kind of sidled over to me and said, would you consider going out with me sometime? And I said, oh, well, I suppose. I haven't got anything else to do. Anyway, I'm not dating anybody right now. Well, that was Tom. Now, the story gets more interesting with Tom. <laughs> we dated quite a lot and uh, steadily, in fact, and the big uh, joyful experience we had was he would pawn his watch every month and then get enough money so we could go to some bar and sit and drink and dance. And... Uh, He'd use that money up, and then when he ran out of money, we didn't do anything but just take a walk. But anyway, then the next month, when it came time again, he'd redeem the watch, and then he'd pawn it again, and that's what the money we had for dating. But anyway, I thought, well, he's nice enough. And then I got to kind of looking at him. He was a good-looking fellow. There's no question about it. And uh, he had the same philosophy I did. He wanted a family. And we eventually began to talk about getting married. 
and uh, he wanted children he wanted uh, he was very ambitious and I thought well good because I like to eat <laughs> I need somebody who will take care of me well we decided to wait till after the war to get married so in the meantime I went into the Navy as I say and I was accepted and I went in uh, about the time I got to New York before I even got my uniform the war was over <laughs> so much for patriotism <laughs> But they were not going to let me out uh, until all the people had been rotated out ahead of me. So Tom was about to be uh, rotated out. He'd been in the service three and a half years. And uh, so we decided that we would be married, and then I would be out as the wife of a veteran. So I was only in the service just a year. But it was lovely. I enjoyed it. I was in Pensacola, actually, finally. And... uh, by the way, I have been able to go back to Pensacola twice and speak for Alamon. That's quite, a, quite an experience. Well, anyway, we went to, uh, back to my hometown. We had a lovely wedding, a church wedding, and uh, we went across the street to the hotel to a reception. And everybody was congratulating me and giving me their best wishes. And they looked around and they said, well, where's the groom? Well, they couldn't find him. So they finally went up on the mezzanine and found him. They said, well, Tom, what are you doing up here? And he said, well, nobody told me where to go. And so I said, well, I'll take care of that from now on, and you just don't need to worry about a thing. (laughs) And I did. So anyway, that's the way we started our married life. That's how I met him, and he was a, a lovely, lovely man. He adored me. And I had never had anybody really adore me before, and I couldn't get over it. In fact, I thought, I wonder if he's really serious. I can't imagine anybody really feeling that much affection for another person. But anyway, we, we stayed in, in Pocatello, and he went into the hotel business, and our life moved along. And uh, we had uh, about the ninth mar- uh, year into the marriage. I was expecting the third child, and he came home one day, and he said... I have decided to change my profession. The same man that owned the hotel where he was working also owned a uh, food processing company. And he said, I've decided to go into sales, and I think this is my forte, and I think this is really where I belong. Well, I didn't like that idea. I said, what do you mean sales? He said, well, I'll be traveling on the road a lot, and I won't be home and you'll have have the responsibility of the children, and I didn't like that. I liked him being home. I liked him being there. We all lined up in the pew and and church on Sunday, and we were a nice family together. He was there to help me put the children to bed, and he was a very wonderful father to those children, and he was a wonderful husband to me, and I certainly didn't look forward to the idea that maybe he was going to be gone a lot, but he talked me into it. So we started out, and we went down the road, and I cried for the first 10 miles down the road, and after that I never looked back. But this was going to be our life now, and Tom was very successful. He had this lovely boyish charm about him. He was a fabulous salesman, and he started uh, moving so much product for this company that they could hardly keep up with him. And uh, he would sell 60,000-pound railroad cars of processed potatoes 
to these outlying places, and they were just going like crazy all over the country. He and two other men, I'll tell you briefly what he did because it's kind of an interesting story. They pioneered this country for the French, a frozen French fried potato. And it was a new idea and a new innovation, and uh, as I say, Tom was a natural, and he was very, very successful. Well, we moved a lot. He got a lot of promotions, and um, some of them I didn't realize at that time, but they were geographical cures, and I know now, of course, what a geographical cure was. But uh, there were a lot of times when I was very lonely. He traveled all the time. He would only come home on weekends, and it was a lonely life for me. I made a life for my own. I uh, became PTA chairman. Uh, I wrote the Christmas pageant for the children. I worked at the uh, church uh, during their summer Bible school. I directed the choir. I was a soloist in the choir. I did a lot of things to try to make a life of my own, but there were many times I was lonely. I got very involved in the children's lives, and I had a son who played a lot of baseball, and that was fun for the family. But I did those things to try to make a life of my own. But as I say, as the years went by, I became pretty lonely. We moved all the time. Uh, I quit counting after 75 times. <laughs> Tom was a troubleshooter, and they sent him every place to uh, help with new salespeople. And uh, they promoted him constantly. And I used to think, if they just didn't expect so much from him, he was exhausted. He'd come home on the weekend, and uh, there was always a little bar down at the corner, and uh, he'd find a nice uh, place where he could go, and they'd, they'd roll the drinks for the, uh, they'd roll the dice for the drinks. And it was a place for him to relax, and I understood that. He was tired. He'd come home every Saturday and do his paperwork. Go uh, Saturday afternoon, go down to this nice bartender in the neighborhood. And then Sunday, he'd lie on the Davenport and watch me iron eight white shirts so I could get him back out on the road again. So this had become our life. He didn't know uh, how old the children were now. He didn't really care what I did as far as my uh, uh, activities. And he was very distant, and I kept thinking if his company didn't expect so much from him, our life wouldn't be going this way. One day I happened to open his briefcase, and guess what I found? <laughs> a whiskey bottle. I went flying around the corner, and I said, okay, what's this? <laughs> oh, well, honey, you know how it is. Now, when we go out with these men all day long, and we get these big accounts, and uh, we go back to the hotel and maybe have a, a drink to relax, Somebody probably just put it in my briefcase. <laughs> oh, uh-huh. He always had a nice plausible story that was half uh, uh, to be believed and half he'd kind of wonder. But anyway, I'd say, oh, uh-huh. However, now I started checking the briefcase when it started coming home. Well, you know the story. You've known it. We all know it. It doesn't start right away. It starts to progress, and it gets worse and worse. And then you have a lot of doubt. You think, maybe I'm not as attractive as I was. 
maybe he doesn't really care about us like he did. And we became quite distant. One of the first things that goes away in in a home where there's alcohol is communication. And we began to realize that we didn't really have anything to say to each other anymore. So I said to him one day, you know, you and I never talk anymore. You come home on the weekend you go, and you do your paperwork and go down to the bar for a while and then, you, then I do the ironing and you're gone again and we never talk. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do, honey. I'll call you every Wednesday from out on the road. I said, oh, well, that's it. And the children will be in bed and you and I have time to, to just talk things over. You can tell me what you're doing and what the children are doing. And this way, we'll keep in touch better than we are now. Oh, well, okay. So the first Wednesday night, 2 o'clock in the morning, the telephone rings. <laughs> I go running to the phone in my nightgown, shivering and shaking, and here he is. Oh, honey, hi, this is me. I'm calling you for our Wednesday night talk. Oh, wait a minute. Herman, have you ever talked to my friend, my friend, my friend, uh, Wife, Mary Fran, say hello to her. And so Herman get on the phone. Hello there, Mary Elizabeth. How are you? And this is Herman. Now I say, Mary Fran, my name is Mary Fran. Oh, well, Joe, here, did you ever talk to Tom's wife, Mary Estelle? She's on the phone here. Would you say hello to her? Well, anyway, he'd come on the phone. He'd say, hello there, Mary Ruth. I'm glad to say hello to you. My name is Mary Fran. Okay. And this would go clear around the room, and I'd talk to all these fellows. Tom would get back on the phone. He said, well, that's it for this time, honey. I'll see you on the weekend. (laughs) Now, this was our form of communication. And I think, why did I get up in the middle of the night to hear all those stupid drunks call me by the wrong name? What's communicating about that? But do you know I never missed a single Wednesday night? If the phone rang, I went. (laughs) So this was how it went. Well, anyway, as I say, Tom moved a lot. He got a lot of promotions, and uh, there came a time when they, they wanted to send him to Canada. They were opening up a great new food processing plant in Canada, and uh, they were going to send him up as the general sales manager for the entire country up there. Fabulous opportunity. So we went. The idea was that the people in Canada were going to plant all these potatoes out there in the prairie, and uh, they used an old um, air base that they had used in World War II that was vacant, and they were going to turn it into a food processing plant. And uh, they sent six fam- American families up there to, to open this plant up and start uh, marketing these potatoes in Canada. Well, this is all very well and good, except if you've ever lived in Canada, it gets 50 below zero in the winter. <laughs> Uh, the snow gets so high that you can't even send the children to school, and if they can get through, they have to, they have to wear scarves across their mouth. Otherwise, they breathe the ice crystals. They could die from it. It's a pretty treacherous place to live, really. There were absolutely no social amenities there. The six wives of us would meet every morning and have coffee so we could decide where we were going to meet that afternoon and have coffee. <laughs> That was uh, the entire social life uh, that went on there. But it was an experience. 
About that time, after they got going good, they uh, sold the whole operation to a Canadian company. And everybody went home except Tom and I, and they sold Tom with the package because they didn't know how to market potatoes, and they knew he did. So they sold him with the, with the uh, whole deal, and we went to Toronto. Now, from a little tiny uh, community out in the... Uh, Manitoba Prairie of 1,100 people, we moved to Toronto, which is an, an enormously gorgeous place and a very cosmopolitan city. So this was a big departure, and my children got quite an education there. It was an interesting life up there. Um, he went to work with this other company, and in jig time, they found out he had a drinking problem. His other company had just sort of overlooked it for years. He was a fantastic salesman. He knew he could do fantastic things. And they'd say, Tom Walker is a fabulous salesman, but he drinks a lot, and they were willing to accept that. This new company were not willing to accept it. They'd found out they had something they couldn't handle, and they fired him, period. Well, he was devastated. He was so infuriated anyway that he was there, and of course the drinking was now really, really incessant. His old company finally took him back. They felt so badly about what had happened to us that they decided they would take him back to the United States. However, I stayed in Toronto with the children because we had a house we had to move. So they they took him back into the United States, and uh, he started traveling down there. He came home one day from a trip, and he said, there's something terribly wrong with me. I said, well, you got that right. (laughs) Well, he was hemorrhaging quite seriously, and they put him in a hospital in Toronto, and for 30 days they ran a culture on him and decided that he had a very serious illness. And they said he's either got cancer of the kidney, he's got bladder tumors, He's got tuberculosis or the fourth one, I forget. And I said, what is this, multiple choice? But anyway, turned out he had tuberculosis. Well, this was a shock to us. I thought tuberculosis was a dead disease. Didn't Nobody had tuberculosis anymore. They closed all the sanitariums. Well, it turned out he had tuberculosis when he was in the service before I ever met him, and they misdiagnosed it and called it some unknown viral pneumonia. And so they did not treat him for tuberculosis. He nearly died in the service. This is before I met him. And uh, so 20 years after that, he had moved this tuberculosis from his lungs to his kidneys. And now he had renal tuberculosis. This was a big shock to us, uh, such a shock that that it was very hard for me to accept. They said, by law, he has to go into a sanitarium. So I said, well, why would you put my husband in a TB sanitarium? And the doctor said, because he has TB, and he needs to go or he'll die. And by, the, by law, you had to go. So I chucked him down to the TB sanitarium. Now, I'll tell you, I was 30 pounds lighter than I am now. I, in fact, I look pretty cadaverous. You couldn't tell if I was a man or a woman, actually. I was gaunt, pale, bitter, hostile, and uh, very difficult to talk to. Uh, 
I had lost all my uh, feeling that I was of any value now. And I checked him into the TB sanitarium, and they said, And honey, who sent you here? I said, Not me, him. He was this apple-cheeked, happy, uh, charming, boyish. (laughs) And here I was, this terrible, gaunt-looking person. I looked like a cadaver, as I say. Well, I was getting very concerned by his behavior now. And when they talked about a room, I said, I, I think he ought to be in a ward, because I thought his behavior was very strange and that he bore watching. His mother couldn't understand that. She thought I was very, very insensitive, and he, Tom needs a private room. And I said, well, I think he'd do better in a ward. Well, she, I didn't tell her, of course, why I felt that way, but anyway. So they put him in a private room. Now... I had three children at home. One of them I had in bed with rheumatic fever. The second one was in the hospital with tonsillitis and lots of ear and and tonsil problems. And the older girl would take care of those two while I drove the 75 miles every day to the sanitarium. I had to watch him, didn't I? They used to say, Mrs. Walker, you don't need to come every day. And I'd say, oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. I have to be here every day. And so I'd rub his back, and I'd take him artichoke hearts to eat and all these nice tender things. I took him money for his uh, projects that he did in the workshops and and, uh, handcrafts. And uh, I'd go every day. Now, this went on for about a year. Finally, the doctor called me one day and he said, Mrs. Walker, we have some serious problems here with your husband. I said, oh, really? What would that be? (laughs) Well, he said, uh, there's all kinds of pandemonium breaking loose in this hospital. And your husband seems to be the ringleader. There's horse bedding going on and uh, all kinds of wild and crazy things going on. And we keep him constantly sedated and we don't understand how, why he's doing all this. Now, about a week before that, I had been out to his, his room and I went into his, he had a little private bathroom off his room. And I went in there, and I was drying my hands with a towel, and guess what I found between the towels stacked up in his bathroom? A whiskey bottle. (laughs) So, of course, I went flying around the corner, and I said, okay, what's this? (laughs) Oh, honey, you know how it is. There's a nice man down the hall who's got a wife who doesn't understand why he might want to take a little drink once in a while. So he asked me, could he leave his bottle in my bathroom? (laughs) Oh, uh uh-huh. So when the doctor called me a week later and said all this pandemonium is breaking loose, he said, we can't understand it. I said, doctor... And this is the first time I ever said it aloud to myself, even I said, the man is drinking in your hospital. He's an alcoholic. Now, I didn't want to say those words. I didn't want to be married to an alcoholic. You know, we talk about denying it. I was too smart, wasn't I, to get hooked with something like that? How could I possibly be married to an alcoholic? But anyway... When I was confronted with this situation, I had to admit it to the doctor. 
So anyway, it was reported to me that they went upstairs, turned his mattress back. They found 24 empty whiskey bottles under his mattress. (laughs) Now, I like to tell this story because we get the idea that, that somehow we can intervene, we can stop it, we can circumvent it, we can prevent it, and there's... If, if a man could drink in a TB sanitarium, they can drink anywhere. He was almost like he was incarcerated. Years later, I said, how did you get that whiskey? He said, I just walked down the gate, got in a cab, and went and got a bottle. <laughs> of course. What else? Well, anyway, <laughs> the doctor called me. He said, you come and get him. We have no facilities to, ca- to handle a situation like this. We have no way that we can do anything about it. He's about to be discharged anyway. He's been here a year. Come and get him. I said, Doctor, please tell me what am I going to do with him now. You're turning him loose on me again, and I have nowhere to go. I have no, no answers. What can I do? He said, I'll call you back. He called me back and said, you're very fortunate one of the foremost specialists in the, in the North American continent is right here in Toronto, and he has a clinic, and he is a specialist in alcoholism. I said, oh, thank you, doctor. Thank you. That's the answer I've been looking for. I know that, I, that he, they can help him. So the idea was we went, to, we went down to meet this doctor. He had a clinic there in, in Toronto. And... Uh, the idea was that they would give him LSD. <laughs> this was the uh, famous treatment they had at that time. And they would, uh, the idea was they would they'd give him LSD. He would be uh, regressed back to his childhood to find out why he drank. I said, Doctor, I don't think he drank as a child. (laughs) But anyway, I thought, well, what do I know? So anyway, we went down on the appointed day, and he was going to have this uh, LSD. And I stood out in the hall. I didn't want to miss anything. You know, I wanted to be sure I was there. And I heard, him, I heard him in there, and I heard the doctor said, Now, Tom, we're going to give you this LSD to this day. I don't know how it was administered. I don't know if it was orally or injection or what, but anyway. We're going to give you this LSD, and this is going to help you. And, and all of a sudden, Tom let out this blood-curdling scream. He had a terrible reaction to this, uh, this medicine. And I heard the doctor say, quick, give him a shot. This isn't working with this man. We've got to bring him out of it. So anyway, that was his one and only time on LSD. (laughs) It didn't work, and Tom had a violent reaction. So, but anyway, as often happens, there was one very beautiful, lovely thing came out of this whole thing. At that clinic, they had AA meetings. We had no idea what AA meetings were all about. I had heard of them vaguely. I didn't have any idea what they were, and neither did Tom. But anyway, they said, you can go to AA meetings with your husband. It's open, and you can sit and listen. So we went to the first meeting. I'm going to tell you that I was never more impressed with anything, ever. 
I could not believe the beautiful things, the beautiful words as I heard those 12 steps read. I thought that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. I was so impressed with the people in those meetings. They shared openly. They stripped themselves right down to the bone, told every mean, rotten, terrible thing they had ever done, and they wanted to make amends. They wanted their life to be better. And I thought, oh, if Tom would just do that. That's the answer. I loved the meetings, and Tom sat there and looked at the floor. Well, after the meeting, of course, I remembered all the salient facts, and I went reviewed them with him. <laughs> and going home, we talked about the meetings and so forth, and we did go. We did continue to go to some meetings. Eventually, uh, we went to less and less, and finally he stopped going, and he was back working again. Well, I'll shorten the story up because you know the story. For the next 15 years, Tom was in and out of alcoholism treatment hospitals, one after the other. He'd go to AA for a while, and then he'd drop out, and then he'd start to drink, and it'd get very, very bad. And then he'd go into another uh, alcoholism treatment hospital. I think there were seven or eight in the next 15 years. My children got to the place where they'd say, Mother, he's not ever going to get sober. I said, Oh, yes, he will. Oh, yes, he will. I know this time it'll be different. I know he will. And never, ever, ever did one person ever say anything to me. In those days, it was always what you do for the alcoholic. And sometimes they would call me into these treatment centers and they'd say, Okay, Mrs. Walker, what are you going to do if he starts to drink again? Well, I guess so I was, I'd die rather than I'd tell those people anything. I wouldn't tell them how I felt. I wouldn't open myself up to them at all. I didn't trust them, and all they cared about was, what am I going to do if he drinks again? And I became even more distant and arrogant and hostile and bitter. And over the years, it took a terrible toll on me. And over the years, I would get more and more saddened by this whole thing, and I could hardly live with it anymore. I closed myself totally down. I never told anybody what was going on. And uh, my family didn't know, and I would die rather than ever tell anybody what was happening in our home. Our children became very difficult, and... Uh, as Tom would come out of some of these places, then he couldn't even get a job anymore. He had had wonderful reputation in the food business, and now nobody would even hire him. So I thought, well, we were in very, very serious financial difficulties, and I thought, I guess I'm going to have to save the family. Now, I made a lot of mistakes over the years, and one of the worst mistakes I made was throwing it in his face that I had to support us. And, of course, that was my way of trying to get back at him. And uh, I, I uh, took shorthand and t got out my typewriter and brushed up on it. I was not prepared to make a living. In those days, women didn't have careers. So I was not prepared to, to uh, go to work, but I thought, I'll have to do something. So I got a job uh, working in a real estate office as the office manager. 
And when that salary wasn't enough and I couldn't keep up, I got a, a second job. I was going to go into real estate sales. We were living in Kansas City at this time. And in Kansas City, Missouri, I managed a real estate office. It was a one-girl office in the Missouri part of Kansas City. And then I finally got a license to sell real estate in the Kansas side of Kansas City. When I was going to go into sales, he looked at me one day and he said, you couldn't sell a sick whore a bowl of soup. <laughs> you see, I was invading his area. He was the salesman, and he was trying to keep me from taking over his, his bailiwick. So that made me pretty mad, see, and so I said, oh, I will, and I'll show you. So I sold real estate on the weekends, and I worked in the real estate office in, in the Missouri side in the week. Now, I was exhausted. I had really gotten thin, and I had no friends. I didn't tell anybody what was happening to me, and I was in agony. I'd go home, and he'd be standing there drinking out of the bottle as I'd go around the corner, and finally one day I said, I can't stand this. I cannot stand it. You're destroying us. I want you out of here. There's nothing left. The children are, are impossible, and I cannot keep up with the bills. So he begged me not to do it. He pleaded with me not to do it. And he was pretty adorable. <laughs> and so I said, okay. He would never drink again, and I believed him, and I said, we'll try something else. Maybe three or four days later, I'd go home, and here I'd catch him drinking out of the bottle again. I said, this is it. I cannot stand it. You've got to get out of here. I cannot tolerate it. I can't live with it. And he begged me and pleaded with me not to do it. I really didn't want a divorce. There'd never been a divorce in my family. It was, it was a sort of a rule of thumb that if you couldn't make a go of your life, you got a divorce, and I didn't want to admit to that. So I didn't really want a divorce, and I still cared for him, but I thought I can't live with it any longer. And so by the time I got to the third time, the t uh, attorney said, are you really going to do this or not? And I said, I guess I will because you got my last $75. I file, every time I filed, it cost me 75 Now, where I got that idea, I don't know. But anyway, I said, I'll have to do it now. So I had the sheriff remove him from the home. One day when I was at work and I went home, he was gone. And I, if I'd have found him anywhere, I would have begged him to come back, but he had left town, and he'd gone home to his mother. Well, now that's how we were divorced. And so now I don't have anybody to blame. I'm the most miserable, unhappy person in the world. All I did was go to work and fall in a chair at night, absolutely exhausted, and I had three children that were getting totally out of control. Well, about this time... Tom ended up at his mother's, and uh, she now realized that he had a problem. Up to that time, she never re realized he had a problem. Anyway, she bought him a car and sent him back to Kansas. <laughs> she wanted to be through with that. So he had wrecked his car on the way back there, so he, he came back. Well, he'd come to the door, and I'd slam the door in his face. I thought, if I allow him to say two words to me, I'm still gullible. I would still probably take him back. So I kept slamming the door in his face, or he'd call on the phone. I'd slam the phone in his ear.
After three years of being divorced, I did. I thought I need to find some place where I can find some kind of support. I was so lonely and afraid. So I went to Phoenix. When I got down there, here was a letter from Tom. And uh, what I knew now, uh, I mean, know now, it was an amends letter. He said, I am now in another treatment hospital in Minneapolis, and I would like you to know that I am terribly sorry for everything that ever happened, and I hope that someday we can get back together again. Well, this is all I wanted. This is all I ever wanted. I wanted him to be the person he had been, and I really didn't want the divorce, and I was delighted to think maybe he was going to make it this time. We started writing, and uh, I somebody said, don't get too anxious now, kind of hold him back and find out if he's going to be sober. And so I'd write him friendly letters, and I didn't say too much in them. But uh, we, we wrote, and he wrote me some beautiful letters, and uh, they were lovely. And I could see where he was doing very well. He was selling shoes now in Minneapolis and living in a rehab house. Well, a while went by, and I didn't hear from him. And I thought, well, that's odd. So I called him on the phone, and he said, well, I've decided to marry somebody else. You're going to marry somebody else? He said, well, yes, I've met this woman in the rehab house, and she's 20 years younger than you are. She has three small little children, and I'm going to help her raise her children. And uh, she is alcoholic. Of course, she's a drug addict, and she's suicidal. But I think we, we found each other now, and I think our lives are, were meant to be together. I said, oh, no, you don't. I borrowed the money and jumped on a plane and flew to Minneapolis, threw a hysterical fit in the lobby where he was living, and in ten minutes we got that straightened out and we're going to get married. (laughs) And we did. We went back to Phoenix, and my mother was going to disinherit me, whatever that means. Our children were hysterical. Why would you get yourself back into this mess once you got a divorce and got out of it? Why would you ever do that again? I said, because I know it's the right thing to do. Now, Tom and I had $11 and change between us, and we were going to start a whole new life, and it was going to be beautiful, and I knew it was the right thing to do. Well, it was for a while. He got a job. He could always get a job. He had this fantastic way about him. People were immediately drawn to him. He was a natural-born salesman, and he got a wonderful job down there selling uh, food in Phoenix. And our lives started to get back together again. Now, I had gotten a real estate job, and things were moving right along. I was selling some property every once in a while, and things were just lovely. They sent Tom on a a business trip to Chicago, and one day the boss called me and said, Oh, Mrs. Walker, we've got kind of a problem with your husband. I said, Oh, what would that be? (laughs) Well, Tom's lost his wallet in Chicago. He's lost all his money. He's lost his credit cards. He's lost his plane ticket back home, and we're going to have a hard time getting him back home. And I thought, Oh, my God. I knew what this meant. I knew what it meant. He was drinking again. Well, anyway, they finally got him back. 
and uh, I met him at the airport, and as he embraced me, I felt the pint whiskey bottle hit me in the hip that was in his coat pocket. And now I was just absolutely sick. After all this time, I thought it must be my fault. He told me now regularly it was, was if he had ever drank, and he didn't, of course, but if he ever did, it would be my fault. And although I'd argued and fought with him for years about it, I didn't believe it. I thought, he may be right. Sometimes he'd say, you know, you got a thing about drinking because of your father. I'd say, well, that's possible. So anyway, he went back to work, and every day now he would go to work back in Phoenix, and he'd come home dead drunk and fall down on the floor and lay on the floor in front of me. Now I was completely in pieces. I'd completely come apart. I wouldn't answer the phone. I didn't want my family to know what had happened. So anyway, we had a terrible fight one day, and he said, I don't think it's working. I think it's your fault, and I think I'm getting out. And I said, you're probably right. It isn't working. And he left. I sat there staring down at the floor in my nightgown, didn't brush my teeth, didn't comb my hair, just sat there and stared at the floor. Finally, I got this friendly little voice that said, Oh, Mrs. Walker, your husband just turned himself in down here at the such-and-such alcoholism treatment hospital, and we'd like to talk to you. I said, You want to talk to me? Why do you want to talk to me? Well, it's just customary. We like to talk to the families. So I knew what they wanted. They wanted me to come down there and sign a paper saying it was all my fault. (laughs) I knew that's what they wanted. And I thought, well, I suppose I could do that if I had to. If that's what it's going to take, I probably could even do that. I went down to that hospital, and and I said something about, have you got a paper? And they said, what are you talking about? I said, you want want me to sign a paper, don't you? And they said, oh, no, no, no. Have you ever gone to Al-Anon? I said, no. I heard about Al-Anon a little while ago, but I hear it's a place where where the wives wait across the hall for the men who go to AA meetings, and afterwards they all go out and have coffee. And uh, I don't think that's what I need. And I said, I also hear that uh, if whatever the husbands do in these AA meetings, you have to go along with it. And I said, I've tried to do that for years. It doesn't work. Oh, no, no, no. Why don't you go and find out? Well, I wasn't able to go to the first meeting, so I sent my, my 14-year-old daughter, said, Mother, I will go to the meeting in, in Al-Anon and find out what it's all about. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. So anyway, I was sitting there waiting for her. Tom was in the hospital, and she came back. She was 14, and she came back, and she threw some Al-Anon literature down in front of me on the table and said, I found out three things. Oh, really? What did you find out? You're psychotic, you're neurotic, and you're a martyr. (laughs) No applause, please. Well, you know, I got in uh, later on, I got involved in the Al Anon literature, and I'm going to tell you, nowhere in the literature does it say that. (laughs) But I've often thought if they want to use that, they have my permission to. Well, anyway, I thought, well, I'll go to the meeting anyway. The next night, I'll try it and see. And if they're confrontational with me, I'll just walk out. I don't have to put up with that. (laughs) 
So I finally found the meeting. And you know, the Al-Anon meeting is always down at the very back in the dark, waiting down the steps and around behind the rear of the church. <laughs> and as I uh, got my ready to go, I thought, well, I don't want those people to think I'm tacky. So I had an old, a black dress. I pressed it up. I wore some great big white earrings. I thought I'll kind of hide behind those earrings. And I don't want those people to think I'm tacky, so I'll get myself dressed up as best I can. And if I don't like it, I'll leave. I'll just sit in the back, and if I don't like what I hear, I'll just walk out. So anyway, so as I entered this long place to get down to the Allen on me, I heard all this laughter, and I thought, oh, how disgusting. What are they laughing about? What's so funny? There wasn't anything funny in my life. And I thought, I wonder if they know I'm coming. Well, anyway, I entered the room, and there wasn't any place I could sit in the back row because they had these chairs all in a little circle, and they kind of ushered me right in and put me down in one of these chairs. Now, I don't know how those people know that I was new. <laughs> they must have sensed it. Anyway, they were lovely, beautiful. There was nothing confrontational about it. Every one of them said something kind and gentle and very loving to me. I will never forget it. I hadn't had anybody say anything kind and loving and supportive to me for so many years that I was so moved by that. I can't tell you how I felt. Even now as I think about it, after all those years, I kind of have goosebumps that move down my arms as I think about it. And when we closed, they even held my hand as we said the Lord's Prayer, and I thought they did that just for me. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you that I was so enthralled with this meeting, and they talked about other meetings. So now I started to go to meetings every night, and I heard some fabulous, wonderful things in those meetings. I loved it. I loved being there. I loved the idea that people cared. They didn't care who I was, where I came from, what I thought, what I said. In fact, I didn't say anything. I wasn't able to talk. I was almost comatose by this time. And they would ask me, would I like to say something? At least would I give them my name? And I hung my head and I said, my name is Mary Friend. And that's all I could say. Finally, after six meetings, I went every night, and after the sixth meeting, the dam broke, and I was pounding my fist on the table and telling them about Al-Anon, and I knew this and I knew that, and they said, oh, how long have you been coming to Al-Anon? I said, six days, and I know all about it. <laughs> I didn't know all about it, but anyway, I'd found a place now where I could feel good, and I went every night. And I don't like to tell you this in a bragging way, but I went for 365 continuous nights before I missed a meeting because I needed it so badly. Well, this opened the whole life up for me. And uh, I, I had a home group, and I loved going there. And there was a woman there. Uh, every time she would come to the meeting, we'd say, Oh, Grace is here tonight. We could hardly wait to hear what she has to say. And we'd all sit with bated breath waiting for because Grace had such wonderful, wise things to say. And she'd say things like, Stay away from alcoholics. Oh, wonderful, wonderful things like that. <laughs> 
we had never thought of those things, and we loved what she'd say. <laughs> Such wisdom. And so, anyway, as I, as I say, I would get somebody in the corner, and I'd say, okay, now, when Tom does this or that, what should I do? When he says this or that, what should I say? And they'd say, well, we can't say that. We can't tell you that. I said, what do you mean you can't tell me that? Is this some kind of a secret society here <laughs> where you know all the answers, but you won't tell me? Well, you need to go home and pray about it. And I'd say, I don't want to go home and pray about it. I need right now for you to tell me what to do in this situation or what should I do with my children that are totally uh, out of control. What should I do? Well, we can't tell you that. <laughs> well, anyway, I began to hear it, and I began to come up from the seat of my pants to hear what it meant and what it, what it was doing for me was amazing. Well, one day, somebody, a friend of mine called, and she said, Mary, friend, would you tell them at the meeting that I can no longer serve as group representative because uh, I'm changing my work habits and my work schedule and tell them I'll no longer be able to be the group representative? I said, oh, okay. So I went and told them at the meeting. They said, so-and-so said she can no longer serve as group representative. They said, well, why don't you do it? Do what? Well, you'll be all right. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> so I thought, well, I suppose I could do that. So anyway, I found myself at an assembly. Now, you all have been to assemblies, and they're pretty interesting places. And I thought it was very exciting. And I was sitting in, in the group uh, representative. We were all lined up and sitting on the floor. And this happened to be a, a time when they were electing officers for the area. I didn't know what they were. I didn't know what they were doing, but I thought this is very exciting. We were writing names down, and they were chalking it up on the board. And I thought this is pretty exciting. And the group has trusted me to vote for them, and that felt, made me feel kind of valuable. Well, this went on, and they elected a delegate, and all the delegate, and a chairman, and all those wonderful high-toned positions. And then they said, "And now we need an area secretary." Now, we didn't always, in Arizona, have enough district representatives to take some of these positions, so they didn't have anybody who had offered to put their name in for area uh, secretary. So they said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll open it up to the group representatives on the floor, and I know somebody will be moved to want to be an area secretary. Well, anyway... Nobody moved. Nobody said anything. They said, well, we'll give you a minute to think about it. I know somebody will want to avail themselves of this opportunity to improve your program. Absolute silence. So they said, well, we'll start down the line. We're going to ask each one of the uh, in the row, will you make yourself available? Will you make yourself available? And they started down, no, 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 no. Now, I was sitting about four rows back on the aisle, like we're set up in a, with a center aisle here. And all this was going on, and they went down, no, 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 no. They got to me, and I said, no. And just at that exact instant, a 2,000-pound chandelier broke loose from the ceiling, came crashing down in the aisle, brushed me on the shoulder, spark and flame shot out, and I said, I will, I will. <laughs>
now you talk about your spiritual awakening. <laughs> this is probably the best thing God and I ever did for me. But I said I will, and I did. And now I was in the car with those area officers. We were going all over the area of Arizona to every hamlet, village, city, and town, carrying the message, carrying service, carrying literature, talking Al-Anon, and it was making a whole new world for me. Tom would be at the end of the driveway, and he'd bid us goodbye. Goodbye, girls. Have fun. I'll see you when you get back. And I think he was happy to be, have me gone for a day or two. But he was always very encouraging, and Tom never, ever had a jealous, possessive bone in his body. He appreciated so much what Alanon was doing for me. In fact, one day he said, you have changed far more than I thought was ever humanly possible. And I thought, what a lovely thing to say. And then I thought, what does he mean by that? <laughs> but he loved the Al-Anon program. He loved what it was doing for me, and he was so delighted that I was happy. I asked him one time, I said, do you resent the fact that I'm gone a lot now and I'm involved with Al-Anon? And he said, do you think I would try to deprive you of something that I know that you get so much pleasure from. I would never do that, and he never did. And if you want to have a, a, an, an interesting life in Al-Anon, it's very, very helpful to have a spouse who is supportive. And he always was very supportive. I was asked one day if I would take some literature over to a, a meeting where there was a, a nurse in Phoenix, in a large corporation, who wanted to know about Al-Anon. Now, in those days, it was just becoming apparent that the families were very important in an alcoholic family and that they needed help also. And up till that time, it was often ignored totally. And the, the entire uh, thrust was always given to the AA person, what they need to do to stop their drinking, and that families were totally ignored. And, of course, we were very sick, many of us, from what we saw and how we lived. But this nurse called and wanted some information about Al-Anon, and so they said, Mary Fran, would you take this literature over to this nurse, and, and uh, maybe she has some questions about Al-Anon. And I said, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. All I want to do is just go to the meetings and hear the message that's there and, and learn about the steps and... Uh, take some things home that'll help me with our relationship at home. Well, we really need some help. We need, if you'd just take this over. And I said, I don't know enough about Al-Anon. She said, you know more than she does. <laughs> I said, okay, all right. I thought, well, if I just do it, she'll leave me alone. So I took this literature over, and I went in and visited with this visiting nurse at this big corporation in Phoenix. And she was very nice and very interested in Al-Anon. I left some literature with her, and she had a few questions, and I was able to answer them. They were very simple, really just general questions about the program. When I got out of the parking lot, I thought, well, say, that made me feel pretty good. I was, the woman was very grateful that I was there, very gracious to me, and it made me feel good. I thought, well, that wasn't too bad. Well, then one day a man approached me and said, Mary Fran, would you and Tom come down and talk 
and, and we have a women's alcoholic rehab house there in Phoenix. And would you come down and just uh, talk a little bit about your, your program? And I said, oh, no, no, I don't do that. I don't talk. Uh, on a one-to-one, I could tell you what you should be doing, but I don't talk. <laughs> now, Tom was wonderful because he was, a, he was a trained professional salesperson. He did all kinds of sales seminars, and he loved it. It was his, his thing. He loved to do it. And I said, I know he would probably do it, but you ask him, and I, he probably will. So he asked him, and Tom said, well, sure, I'll be glad to share a little with uh, my story. So they said, well, couldn't you just come along, and maybe you could just say, I go to Al-Anon, it helps me a lot. <laughs> I said, well, I suppose I could say I go to Al-Anon, it helps me a lot. Well, I could do that. <laughs> and we, we went down on the appointed hour. Now here we go to this big house, and there's all kinds of cars out there. And uh, as we drive up, I said, huh, someone must be having a block party. <laughs> we went in there, and this man came up to me, and I noticed this great big room set up with the chairs, and here's a podium and a microphone. And the man comes bustling up to me, oh, very friend, I see you and Tom are here. Do you want to be first or second? I said, first or second what? <laughs> well, do you want to speak first or second? I said, I told you I don't speak. I don't talk. I don't, I don't know how to do that. I, I just don't talk. And he said, well, uh, maybe you could just come up and just say a few words. I said, all you told me I had to do was say, I go to Al-Anon, it helps me a lot. He says, come on, you can say that too. <laughs> well, I had never spoken any place, and I was terrified. I started to turn white. Tom looked at me. He says, what in the world's the matter with you? You look like you're going to... Get me sick. I said, I'm either going to throw up or faint. I can't do this. The man hustled me up by the arm and put me up here in front of the microphone and he says, and here's Mary Fran. <laughs> now, I was just paralyzed with fear. I wasn't prepared in the first place. And I mean, to have this thing happen to me like that fast, I didn't even have two seconds to even give it a thought. And as I stood there, I left my body and I went up and I was on the ceiling. There is a scientific explanation, you know, for that. They say sometimes we are so paralyzed with fear that we actually leave our bodies to get away from it, the fear. And that happened to me. And I was up on the ceiling, and uh, I heard this woman's voice droning on and on. <laughs> and she had this terrible Midwestern twang about her voice, and I thought... If she just shut up, it would be nice and quiet up here. I looked down, and I saw all the people sitting. I saw the back of their heads. They were all lined up in chairs. And this woman's voice just kept on and on and on. And I said, oh, she'd just be quiet. Well, pretty soon I heard myself say, and thank you very much. I was back at the podium, and I went and sat down. Now, after the meeting, a man came up to me and said, I wish my wife had been here tonight to hear what you had to say. And I said, I wish I had been here tonight to hear what I had to say. Well, that was my first experience of speaking. And do you know that I know God did that for me? He put me on the ceiling. 
I could just understand why he'd say, well, this old broad's got herself into another mess and I'm going to have to help her out. And he put me on the ceiling. And uh, I know he helped me with that. To this day, whenever I approach a microphone, and I did it a few minutes ago, I always say, and God, I'm going to need a little help again with this today. Now, I don't presume to think that what the words coming out of my mouth are God's words, but he holds me together while I say it. And I like to tell people about talking because we have a terrible fear that we are not going to be able to do it. And I had a terrible fear for that. They started inviting me to speak now, and I, four times I turned people down. And I said, I can't do it. And they said, but you did it. And I said, but I don't know how I did it. And they said, you'll find a way to do it. After four times refusing, I finally thought, you know, I'm holding myself back by refusing. It doesn't really matter what I say. It's the fact that I'm willing to say it is what's important. Now, I want to tell you a couple of quick things about speaking. I have done a lot of speaking, but I've had some interesting experiences, and uh, I want to share a couple with you. Maybe it'll help you if you have some kind of a fear of speaking. I was sitting in a, a, in a, a place in Texas. Texas is big, so you won't know what I'm talking, where I'm talking about. But in those days, uh, and it frequently happens, they invite you to come the night before because the committee wants to meet the speakers and the spouses if they're there. And they have a nice uh, get-together with the committee people and the visiting speakers. So we were sitting at, a me at this meeting, and a woman sitting next to me turned and looked at me and looked at my badge, and she said, Mary Friend W., Pine, Arizona. Well, are you a speaker? Now, I had a ribbon hanging down from my badge, like I have here, that says, speaker. <laughs> and I said, well, I guess so. That's what it says here. And she said, I never heard of you. <laughs> so I want to say to you that if you've never heard of me, that's okay. We'll start even, because I've never heard of you either. <laughs> On another occasion, I was invited by a very fine uh, Al-Anon gentleman in California to come and speak at a luncheon for H&I, which is hospital and institution. It is an AA designation, by the way. But they invited me to come and be an Al-Anon speaker, and he said, I'll pick you up at the airport, and I'll take you back. And it was just going to be a day trip because I was going to go in and out that day. <clears throat> I spoke at the luncheon. It went very well. And as we were take, going back to the airport, we started this conversation, and he said, you know, you so-called circuit speakers, it's all ego with you, you know. I said, oh? And I thought, well, I wonder where he's going with this, because he had invited me, and I thought that was kind of a strange thing for him to say. He said, oh, sure. He said, you know, people tell you how wonderful you are. They give you gifts. They tell you what a fantastic message you have. And it's all ego. So I thought, well, that's an interesting way. And I said, 
you know, you may be right. It does make me feel good. I'd never really thought of it that way. And after I do it, I do feel good about it. And I looked at him and I said, you'd like to do it, wouldn't you? (laughs) And he said, yes. (laughs) So anyway, there are great joys in going around and visiting. And what a joyful place this has been for me. This is absolutely a beautiful, beautiful place. I've never been in Georgia before, and I so appreciate your inviting me. I've had an absolutely lovely time. And I want you to know that my whole life has changed having been in this program and having met people like you. Wherever I go, there are more and more lovely people every place I go. I've never been any place yet that I didn't meet fabulous, wonderful people. We are a one of a kind in this world today. P- hotels love to have us because we don't ha- create problems. We don't get drunk and fall down. We don't have fights with the, with the employees. We are really wonderful, lovely people, and it's such a joy and a pleasure to be here. I've had uh, fabulous experiences. I was a, a delegate, as you uh, already announced. In fact, you took part of my story out, but uh, I was shocked when I was elected a delegate. I didn't expect to be, but I thought I must make my name available and I must be willing because that's what's important. And I was elected and was very surprised. A couple things I want to tell you quickly about some of the early days. I'm running way over, but anyway. Uh, I went as a delegate and I was put in the front row. I sat between Lois W., who, uh, who regularly attended the World Service Conferences and was there every day in those days, and the chairman of the board. They put me in the front row, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I wonder if they think I need watching or what. <laughs> and people would come by with their cameras, and they'd say, oh, Mary Fran, can we take a picture? And I... But Lois was a lovely, lovely lady to to get to know and love, and I did so enjoy those days. But anyway, from that point, I thought there's got to have been more that I could have done as a delegate. I was joking with them at the dinner table, and they said when I was elected a regional trustee, Mary Fran Walker, I don't remember her. And somebody said, well, she was a cactus in the skit. So that's how impressed I made everybody. And, but, anyway. but one of the most amazing things that ever happened to me, and I cannot tell you how I felt, was that the nominating committee came to me and said, may we put your name forward for chairman of the board? I said, but I have never presumed to be chairman of the board. They said, yes, we know. That's why we want you. So the, the experiences I've had as a, as a member of this fellowship are unbelievable, incredible, fantastic. I can't tell you what it's meant to be. It's my life. And I've loved being here with you and been able.